Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. Usually this is the time when we would say we are your hosts and Kim would say, I'm Kim France. And I would say, I'm Jen Romolini, which I am, but Kim is out of town today. Um, she's on the road. So we're just going to do something a little bit different. We're just going to get right into our excellent interview with author Virginia Soul Smith. And just a note for listeners, my sound is a little off in this episode. So if I sound a little shrieky, that is why. Let's get into the episode. Our guest today is Virginia Soul Smith. Virginia is a writer and podcast host who frequently contributes to the New York Times. Her work also appears in the New York Times Magazine, Scientific American, and many other publications. You may know Virginia from her newsletter, Burnt Toast, which explores fat phobia, diet culture, parenting, and health. Virginia is the author of the 2018 book, The Eating Instinct. Her most recent book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, which we're going to talk about a lot today, encourages us to name and navigate our anti-fat bias so we can raise happier and healthier children. Welcome, Virginia. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to have you. So Fat Talk, I was just telling you before we started recording, I think it's a stunning achievement. It is so smart. It is so thoroughly researched. I think it's an important and eye-opening book. I also think it's life-affirming or life-changing, and I feel like it should be required reading for all parents. So thank you for writing it. Like thank It's you. an amazing wow. book. Yeah, I so appreciate that. But it also made me really, really sad. Um, it broke my heart how much we're letting these kids down. And I wonder, is that one of the reasons you wanted to write it? Yeah, I mean... It really started to come together as a book idea for me a few years after working on the first book and having conversations with people. And just, I'm now this person who people 
at parties, you know, like, yes, in promotional mode, but also just like in my daily life at the grocery store or whatever. People tell me all their food and body stuff now, which is, you know, it's an honor, but it's also like a lot to carry. And sometimes you're just trying to like buy milk and now you're (laughs) in a whole situation with someone. Um, And the thing that I kept noticing was parents and not even just parents, but people in general were saying to me over and over, you know, I want my kid or I want myself to feel this freedom around food and bodies that I've never felt. I don't want, you know, those of us who grew up in 80s and 90s diet culture, like we know what a train wreck, we know what a shit show that was. I would add 70s to that as well. 70s for sure, yes. Um, You know, we know what a shit show it's been and we don't want to keep doing that. Right. Um, And yet there's this underlying thing of, but I, I don't want to be fat. I don't want my kid to be fat. And I get that. I have been there. I am still sometimes there. You know, like this is this is the deep fear. But unless yeah. we can really name and wrestle with that, unless we can say that is an anti-fat, that's anti-fat bias. That's a bias I've learned. It's not my fault I hold it, but I hold it and I want to unlearn it. Like we have to start the conversation there. Otherwise, we are always putting contingencies around who gets to love their body, who gets to eat dessert, all of the things we want for our kids. We can't have it if we're only making it available to certain bodies. I was I was curious, you know, on on that topic, um, because it's my unscientific theory that every woman has a kind of a fucked up relationship to food one Mm -hmm. way or another, you know, and and obviously on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. So how does a parent with a really imperfect relationship to food, to fat, to health, to all of that, not create a fucked up kid? Like how, that's not how I meant to phrase the question. How does somebody (laughs) with a screwed up relationship to food produce a child who's not going to have that relationship and damage? I think it comes from, I mean, first of all, my kids are only five and nine, so I'll get back to you if I really (laughs) achieve it, right? Like jury's very much out. Right now they have an amazing relationship with food in their bodies, but they're just starting to enter the world with all of this. But I think what we're seeing from research, you know, there's some interesting studies showing that like mothers with active eating disorders were able to insulate their daughters to some extent just Mm. by, by not engaging in the negative behaviors and talk around their kids. That's step one. Like if you can just put a buffer where you don't shit on your own body, shit on other people's bodies um, within earshot of your child. That does go a long way. And then I think, too, this is more anecdotal based on my reporting and just my thinking about the subject for so long. I think it's being willing to say, like, I've I've been getting this wrong. This has been hard for me. I'm trying to figure this out. I want it to be better for you. And being really open with our kids about that. I really hate that this world makes us all feel like garbage about our bodies so much of the time. Um, I want it to be different for you. I think that, because so often what I hear when I interview people who have the fucked up relationship and are in that place, when they talk back, everybody tells me about what their mom said when they were 10 years old, right? Like it always goes back to that moment or what the pediatrician said or what the gym teacher said. And what usually happened when one of those other adults said the thing is that the parent or caregiver in their life didn't offer any counter narrative. They reinforced it. They were like, yeah, the doctor said, you know, you're getting too big, so let's go join Weight Watchers together. Oh, you're getting teased about your weight at school. Let's do Jenny Craig. Like, if you're reinforcing it, then for sure you're passing it on. But if you're the counter narrative that your kid brings at home and you're like, yeah, I don't want that for you at all. That's not what we're doing here. 
even if you yourself are working on your own stuff, that's that's a big difference. You know, it's the, the thing is that's so hard. And, and I, I think I said this to you is like the pediatricians and I've, I've said this on the podcast pediatricians. So I, my, my kid lives in a bigger body, um, always has. And, you know, people started saying things to me about it. You know, my my mother-in-law, friends started saying things to me when my kid was five. Oh, well, you know, you're going to have to watch out. You know, so this the messaging started and I didn't ever pay any attention to it until the pediatrician started measuring BMI. I had a pediatrician when my kid was six tell me to put my kid on a diet. I had, you know, I mean, I've we had a situation last year where the pediatrician would not stop talking about our kid's weight in front of our kid. And my husband was the, the, the parent in that situation. And he took the guy outside. And, you know, it, it's so hard because pediatricians in progressive places are really pushing this narrative. Mm-hmm. Like, like, and I, I just, I want, like, can you speak to that? Because it's so much pressure as a parent I had started to offer that to my kid. And then I realized pretty quickly how wrong that was. Like, Mm -hmm. I did not follow the diet advice. We did not do what they told me to do. Because I could see how much it was hurting my kid in, like, an hour. Yeah. You know, like, already I could see the shame. I could, and I wasn't going to pass that down. So can we talk about what the fuck is going on with these pediatricians? Yeah, for sure. It's really tough, right? Because they hold so much power. You probably have like been through sleep training with this person, like, you know, have sorted out vaccine questions with them. Pro-vaccine, by the way, just in case that wasn't clear. Um, you know, like, you, but you've, you know, you've gone to them with these like anxious, scary parenting questions that can we move from the car seat to the booster seat, all of that. And then suddenly this person you've built trust with over the years that's like helped you give your toddler a flu shot is coming at you with this different message. And it feels horrible because this is someone you should be able to trust and depend on. And the reality is doctors in general are a group of people with very high levels of anti-fat bias. We see this in a lot of studies um, that this is a bias that's alive and well in that profession. Folks are coming into medical school with it and then there's no training in medical school that's geared around helping them unlearn it. And if anything, it's quite the opposite, right? Because we have this whole public health conversation about the obesity epidemic and the health consequences of that, there is a lot of stigmatizing language that gets taught to doctors that they get taught to pass on to patients. And what's important to understand, there's a couple of things that are important to understand about that. We can get into the whole weight health debate of it if you want to go there in a minute. But before we even get into that, number one, I think it's really important to understand that doctors haven't had comprehensive training around this. They don't get a lot of nutrition training in medical school. They also are extremely vulnerable to diet culture messaging, as are we all. I mean, I followed in the book, in the chapter on doctors, I followed doctors who there's like doctor weight loss programs that are marketed at pediatricians, at busy women physicians. Like this is a whole niche of the diet industry. So very often they are themselves engaging in kind of extreme dieting tactics for their own life and then bringing that to their patients. So they're not these like impartial, totally scientific, you can trust them because they're only looking at data, you know, robots. They're people with their own screwed up relationships with food and body. Um, Right. And that have chosen to go into a profession that, 
you know, puts a high priority on perfectionism and data and being and like metrics and being really meticulous about all of these things, which is also what dieting teaches you. So there's just like a lot of um, there's a lot going on there. When our doctor gives us some pronouncement about our kid's body, they are not coming at that from an impartial place. And that's hard to sort of reckon with. And then, yeah, if we get into the whole weight and health of it at all, we don't have good data showing a causal relationship between high body weight and poor health outcomes. We have data showing a strong correlation between these two things. But when we start to dig into why these two things might be correlated, we start to find other explanations. There are some health conditions, a lot of women's health conditions like PCOS, for example, that might drive up weight, but weight loss does not erase the PCOS. Like it is not a cure for PCOS. So the weight increase might be a symptom of a health issue, but focusing on the weight won't target the health issue. Um, There's also times where it's just two correlating things. And actually what you're talking about is a marginalized group facing limited access to healthcare and poverty and oppression and other social determinants of health. And that's likely driving up their risk for disease and maybe also driving up their body size. But again, Focusing on weight loss, not going to make someone not poor, not going to get them health care. So that doesn't solve it. And then with kids in particular, what's really important for parents to know is how dangerous intentional weight loss can be to a child's mental and physical health. Mm -hmm. And that's the piece that's getting left out of the conversation right now, both because doctors themselves aren't swimming in the sea of diet culture and because the diet industry and the pharmaceutical industry is really pushing this message on pediatricians. But the number one risk of future eating disorders is childhood experiences of dieting and weight stigma. So Mm -hmm. pushing weight loss on kids, if you are concerned about their long-term health, I would argue preventing eating disorders is a great first step towards protecting my child's long-term health. It's so funny because you said, you know, just then it, it, I feel like it discussion of people who need to lose weight is almost always couched around how it is going to affect their health. But mm-hmm. it's not about that. No, it's about it's about fat bodies make us uncomfortable. Fat bodies remind us that we're out of control. Fat bodies, we assume, are lazier, less informed, less intelligent, less sexually appealing to men, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's it really is about aesthetics, and about upholding social power structures. And we know it's not about health or we wouldn't be pushing kids to do something that is so clearly not health promoting in the, in the literature. Um, I mean, we see this, we wouldn't be pushing anyone. I mean, dieting has an 80 to 95% failure rate. You wouldn't take a drug that had an 80 to 95% failure rate and you wouldn't 80 to 95%. Yes. That's just astonishing. And that's why Weight Watchers makes money. Exactly. The whole industry is built on the fact that intentional weight loss doesn't work. And so they are counting on you being a repeat customer. That's the entire business model. Um, Yeah, we see that within two to five years after every single diet, and I bet if we all looked back on our lives, (laughs) we could say that that's pretty true. Um, Within two to five years after every diet, you have usually regained all of the weight at least most of the weight, and a, and a significant portion of people end up at a higher weight than they started. So that's the other piece of this weight health conversation. If we are arguing that higher body weight causes health conditions, and I'm not going to say that's never, ever going to be the case, right? Putting someone on a 
a health plan, I'm using air quotes, of you're going to lose this weight, then you're going to gain it back and gain a little bit more. You're going to lose that weight, then you're going to gain it back and gain a little bit more. Clearly not health promoting, like clearly not getting them anywhere. Well, what I think is so interesting. So this this idea that we need to be thin is so deeply ingrained in, in women, especially. I mean, it's men too, you know, but it's so women. Like, I, I think it's so interesting that this book is about parenting because like all the worst decisions, talking to kids about damaging kids about their, their weight and, you know, talking about putting them on diets, all of this is all about shame, right? It's all about our shame as parents. And we are so shamed. And as we're talking, I can already see the comments we're going to get from women. I already know because we can't even, some of us can't even like absorb this information because it's so stuck in us that thin, that you have to be thin, you have to be healthy. My sister-in-law lost all this weight once and she's so much happier. Mm-hmm. Fuck, 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 like all of that. And how do we sort of, what? Do, how do we break this cycle? Like how... Like you did so much work to be, to really bring people through. There's so much evidence in this book. I mean, I really watched you work this out. The research is so deep and so layered. But what do you think? What are you seeing on the ground? Like having these conversations with people? Because I feel like people are very resistant to all of the facts that you just stated. Yes. Oh, yes, they are. Oh, yes. Launching this book has been, um, I mean, Trolls are a sort of facet of my career, obviously, in writing about this topic. But right. the last two months have been a real peak of, uh, hmm. of of men yelling at me in my email and women, too. Um, yeah. And the women often tend to be like grandmas who are really upset about how fat their grandkids are. There's like a whole thing going on there. Um, oh, that's yeah. a big one. Yeah. Yeah. It's a grandmothers, big one. really? Yeah. Oh, grandmothers. A lot of angry yeah. grandmas. Um, that is funny. And I say that with no ageism. What I want to say really clearly is I think it's super important if we're going to get anywhere with this conversation, especially with other women, the men I don't know what to do about, but the women is who I'm focused on, um, is we have to understand that we have all been victims of this, this giant scam, right? And that they are responding out of fear because Thinness has felt necessary. It is a sort of a logical survival strategy in our culture. And that's what we really need to name and sort of come together on. Like, yeah, it has felt so important. It felt so important when your sister-in-law lost that weight because probably it does make it easier for her to get a job. It does make it easier for her to get a promotion. She is treated better in the world. She can find clothes that fit, right? I mean, that's like a super fundamental thing. The bigger you are, the harder it is to put literal clothes on your body, let alone fashion, like just clothes, but also fashion. So, you know, we have to talk about it. If we have to stop blaming each other and really look at who's, to, you know, the larger system that's to blame here. But then that also means looking at how we're complicit in it. And I say that as a former women's magazine writer, and I know I'm in good company there. Um, like, <laughs> yeah. we've, all, we've all been part of it. And so um, that is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It does not feel good to look at that. But I do, I do think starting with some compassion is helpful. Yeah, I think about my mom. And my mom had, you know in the 70s, like photographs from magazines of women in bikinis on the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. Everything was weighed on a Weight Watchers scale. She and I went to Weight Watchers together probably when I was like 14 or 15. And I was not, you know, I had, I was not skinny, but I was not a fat, I was not a big kid, but you know, there was so much pressure. And I think about all these things, you know, I think about last summer, how my mom saw 
my um, cousin's daughter who has very long legs and is very pretty. And she's, she's nine years old. And my mother said, Ooh, she's going to have a nice figure mm -hmm. in front of her. And I mm -hmm. just lost it and got so angry at her, but it's yeah. really not fair. I mean, she was the, just like you're saying, she was the victim of everything that came before. Yeah. Yeah. We have to hold that together somehow that like, that we are all both victims of it. And there are a lot of us who have the privilege it takes to opt out of this and who aren't. And that's something we have to reckon with, you know? What do you mean? Well, like, you know, I have embraced being a small fat, small fat is the term we use for people who wear plus sizes, but we're on the lower end of the plus size spectrum. Um, I have fully embraced that. I stopped dieting several years ago. I wear a 18 to size, like 16, 18, 20, um, that does limit where I can shop. However, I have financial privilege and I can afford to buy, you know, Ray or like the cool indie brands that are making good plus size clothes these days. Um, I also can still fit into like the highest size of some of the straight size lines. And, you know, I have white privilege. So my weight, when I go to the doctor's office, I can say, I'm not going to get on the scale because I don't want my weight to be a part of my the conversation about health. And I can do that advocacy and know that because I'm white, because I am, you know, cisgender because I have all these other privileges, I'm educated, they're actually going to have a dialogue with me about that and listen to what I have to say instead of like refusing to treat me, which is what's going to happen to someone who is both fat and has all these other marginalizations. And so for me, like it just came up the other week, a friend of mine was telling me about a really amazing weight inclusive doctor she found who's like an hour drive away from us. And I was like, oh, should I change my kids over to that pediatrician? It would be so nice to just know it's like a totally safe place. And then I thought, you know what, Virginia, no, you stay with the pediatrician in our town who needs to do this learning. <laughs> And you show right. up with your privilege and your skinny kids, by the way, who are not getting this weaponized against them yet. And you, you know, you try to do that work there and see if you can make that person so we don't have to drive an hour to find a safe doctor. So we have one in our town, too. So that's what I'm saying. Like, those of us, it's anyone who's a woman already. It's like, yes, thinness feels required for safety. It's extremely terrifying to think about opting out. I don't want to minimize that. But I do think there are some of us for whom it is easier to say, I'm going to say no to diets. I'm going to, you know, fuck the system and I'm going to be in the body I'm in. And yet it's still really hard. Totally. And so much of this is is also wrapped up in class, too, yes. right? Oh, I mean, yes. that, you know, like I... I I know growing up working class, like I know that that my mother was acutely aware that one of the privileges that she, the lever she really wanted us to keep being able to pull was thin privilege. Yeah. Like I am, I know absolutely because I think that she was very aware that it was going to be harder for us to move through the world as a working class family mm -hmm. if, if our bodies were bigger. Like I, I know that and that, you know, that led to absolutely eating disorders on her and 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 for me as well even after we you know had had more money and you know ascended ascended class to some degree let's take a quick break from some ads ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we're back! One thing I was really interested in in the book um, that I had not thought about was you talk a lot and there's a good deal of criticism about Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about that because I think that it's starting to like, I think the the ways we start to get over this, right, and start to move past this is really starting to dismantle things that we never even really thought about, right? Mm -hmm. So. So let this let's move. This came as a shock to me because when I was watching Michelle Obama doing the, you know, dancing around with vegetables, I was like, woohoo, this sounds great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How fucking great. But let, let's talk about what was problematic about that, because I because when you explained it, I was like, oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, same. I was, you know, a health journalist at the time covering it and being like, this is an amazing step forward for humanity. Like she's dancing with Big Bird and getting kids to like vegetables and And it's not that Let's Move did no good. It did lead to the passing of the Healthy and Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010, which increased school lunch access for like 29 million kids, you know, improved free school lunch meals. And, um, you know, it did a lot to improve the nutritional standards of school lunch, which I think is great. But the entire campaign is framed as preventing childhood obesity which means they went into schools, they went into communities with all of this language about preventing childhood obesity on flyers, on pamphlets, whatever, being handed out. And so if you are the fat kid sitting in class the day your class is getting a let's move whatever presentation, the day Michelle Obama comes to your school to dance with you guys, you know that they're talking about you not existing, that your body needs to change in order for it to be okay for you to be here. And there's just no reason to have made it about that. She could have talked just about the importance of kids eating more vegetables, which, you know, thin kids should eat vegetables too once in a while. She could have talked about the importance of increasing activity. Again, benefits everybody regardless of body size. It would have been really great if she had focused on childhood hunger, which at the time was impacting more kids in America than childhood obesity and would have really been a place where she could have centered all her efforts. But she didn't do that. And I'm guessing, you know, and from the reporting I did, this was confirmed by some sources, a lot of it was about what she could sell in Washington, right? And childhood hunger is an issue you solve with social programs, like increasing food stamp budgets and welfare. And that is a difficult sales pitch to Republicans. But saying, like, we need less fat kids works on both sides of the aisle. Anti-fat bias is, you know, nonpartisan. And so what ultimately ended up happening, the real twist that doesn't get talked about enough, is that the big bill, the centerpiece of her legacy, 
funded the increase in school lunch programs by taking money out of the food stamp program. And so the low-income kids who benefited from those school lunch programs, their parents had less money to spend on dinner. So it wasn't actually the big win that it gets painted as. And a lot of that is, you know, political activism, so many different factors. I'm not putting all of that on Michelle Obama by any means, who, by the way, I also love in the way we all love her. You know, like, it's so complicated. And she was up against so much. She like, was up against she, so, Her body was the target body. of so much hate. Yes. Yeah, the intersection. Yes, of the racism, the sexism, and the anti-fatness she lives with daily is unfathomable to me. So all of that for sure. But ultimately... What that program did is kind of center in all of our minds. I think those of us who were around when it happened and then became parents after who were parenting through it, it really centered for us that childhood obesity is like the worst, the worst thing that can happen to your kid. And I would argue. Well, actually, also, yeah. yeah. No, it's not. Because also, like, Obama was out there being like, Malia got a little chump- chubby, right? I mean, yeah. with, like, all of our hero is yeah. talking about his kid's body in this very public way. And none of us thought, I mean, I didn't even think anything of it yeah. at the time. Yeah, no, same. I mean, looking back and reading, you know, I read through, like, the transcripts of all these speeches she gave and the, and the quotes he gave about it, too. And over and over again, they were talking about their daughter's bodies in this way that, I mean... I would imagine there's someone packing to do him therapy like <laughs> I would not feel great if my mom had gone on national, my dad had gone on national television and talked about my body as an 11 year old, like the most awkward time, like absolutely not. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's just complicated because I have so much fundamental respect for her and want to hold what she experienced. Like it makes sense to me that she really struggles around body stuff And I think we're seeing that right now, too. She's got this new, like, fruit juice line that she's launching, again, as another, like, let's reduce childhood obesity. And I'm just like, can can we not? Can we not? (laughs) Can we, can, like, how do we get her to just, like, focus on other issues? Oh, my God. But also the juice shaming. I mean, I used to give my kids juice all the time. And the juice, it was like juice i know the it was like i was giving my kid like vodka yeah <laughs> absolutely it is the vodka of the preschool set yeah it's wild and that gets into i mean juice shaming also every birthday party you go to where there's so much negative talk about sugar and how crazy they're going to be if they eat the cupcakes i mean we really bathe our kids in this messaging and then we're surprised when like it's it's confirmation bias, right? Like if you tell your kid like you're going to eat the sugar and you're going to get crazy and then your five year old has a meltdown, like is it because the sugar did it or is it because you've hyped it and you've made it forbidden and you've told them they can't have it and you've really policed how much they can have over and over. And then when they finally get it, they go nuts because they finally have access to it. Like that's no, all. But then also we're surprised when they're 14 and they hate their body. When, or when they're 13 and they, yeah. they, they put on a natural amount of weight because puberty. they're going through puberty and they're grabbing their stomachs and saying, I hate this. I yeah. hate this. Like, this is, it, this is like a radical, we need to make a radical shift 
because this, I have a kid in middle school and you see it now. You just, this is when it really, like the roosters come home to roost. It's like you really see them grappling with this shit in a profound way. And it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's absolutely, it's, it's heart, it's heartbreaking. Yep. I was going to ask a question. And the question I was going to ask is that I read that you, you had to confront some of your own biases while working on this book. What were they? Yeah, it was while working on this book and also, you know, just in the last 10 years of being a parent and realizing how many ideas I had about how I'd be as a parent around my kids' food and body, um, a lot of things that fell by the wayside. I mean, a really early one is, um, so my older daughter has this complicated medical history and was on a feeding tube in the first two years of her life. And that was when I really started to realize how much diet culture I had bought into. I mean, I already thought before I had her that I was like divesting and on this path. And then we were trying to teach her to drink out of a cup and she just had no interest in drinking water out of a cup because it just didn't taste like anything and she didn't want anything to do with it. And they kept saying, well, try chocolate milk. And I was like, I can't give my two-year-old chocolate milk. Like I'm such a bad mom. If I, I mean, it was like the juice thing, you know, yeah. I'd be such a yeah. bad mom. And I, when I really sat with it, I was like, it's because I think it has too much sugar. And I think if she eats too much sugar, she'll get that. And I have a kid who can't drink out of a cup. So how about I focus on that issue? Yes. (laughs) And not on the like preventing, like controlling her future body size. Like what the hell? Seriously. So fucked up. So that was a big one. And I just saw versions of that throughout the reporting for the book too, where I think a lot of us have this limit in our head where we think, okay, well, it's okay to be fat if you're also pretty. It's okay to be fat if you're also healthy. It's okay to be fat if you go to the gym a lot. You know, we have these kinds of like, you know, these contingencies that we put on when, when we're allowed to be the weight we are, if we are, you know, checking all these boxes. And again, the more rules we put around it, the more contingencies we put around it, the more we make this world not safe for all bodies. And it was really helpful to me to actually talk to people in very fat bodies who are unhealthy in different ways and understand the degree to which that, you know, that is not a choice. Weight is determined at least 60% by genetics. And by another big piece of that is the things you have no control over, like environmental factors, you know, family stuff. There's just like things that are totally out of your control from childhood on. Diet and exercise are the smallest piece of the puzzle, but that's where we all focus, of course, because that's where the money is to be made. And understanding that, you know, when we say, oh, this person's unhealthy, so much that's about they can't actually get taken seriously in a doctor's office. You know, they go in with a sinus infection and they're told to lose weight. They go in to seek fertility treatment and they're told they need bariatric surgery first. Like the layers of bias that prevent fat people from moving through the world and accessing health is a huge part of why we, you know, why we see these correlations between weight and poor health. And just, I think I had to step back and realize, like, why are we putting such a privilege on health to begin with? Again, it's not really about health. It's not really about, I want to be able to chase after my grandkids and enjoy my life. That's the kind of stuff people say, but it's a lot about how I think I need to perform my body in the world. It's a lot about I think I need to look healthy, just like I need to look thin, just like maybe I need to look like I'm in a certain class financially and the labels I wear and all of that. So much of this is about how we're presenting outwards. 
And so, yeah, a lot of this work in sitting with these different families that I interviewed and understanding their challenges and the nuances of their life um, helped me start to strip away a lot of that. I keep coming back to like the notion of shame and shame seems so powerful. I'm thinking in my own personal life because I'm a person didn't really have any weight issues until menopause and COVID happened at the same time. And then I gained a chunk of weight and I've had to deal with a lot of what I know is my own bias. And in order to not just loathe myself over it, it's, it, 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 it's kind of overwhelming. Yeah. You know, and as somebody who cared about clothes a lot, when you stop being able to shop, you know, your favorite brands because they don't go to you anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I just I, I, all of this is to say I'm I'm kind of glad I didn't have a kid to screw up. <laughs> no, it's yeah. I, I read recently that one of the biggest ways that women bond is over talking about mm-hmm. losing weight. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so important to name. And I think, Kim, what you were saying about, you know, not being able to buy the clothes you you used to buy, I think it's really important to name that there's a mourning process that a lot yeah. of us have to go through. Mm-hmm. Because there is a lot you lose when you give up thin privilege, even a little bit of your thin privilege, right? Um, you are allowed to feel sad. You can't buy the clothes you used to love. You are allowed to feel sad that it is hard to figure out what to talk about with your friends because everybody is talking about intermittent fasting and you're not doing it. And you're just like, now I don't, I mean, I've had women say to me, I don't even know if these people are my friends because our whole friendship was built on the project of losing weight together. And if I'm out of that, how do I even, and sometimes they're not really your, I mean, that's the sad thing, right? Like you're, you may lose people over this. People's relationships with their parents change over this, you know, with partners, like romantic partners. Um, there's a lot that you lose. And I think what's just important to hold on to is it's not your fault. You're not the one failing that the clothes don't fit you. The clothes should fit your body. Your body doesn't need to fit the clothes. Your friends, if they are really your friends, are going to be excited to talk about other things with you. You know, my own friend group has evolved sort of just gradually over the years. When we were in our 20s and earlier 30s, we definitely had more diet talk, more of that, like, you know, commiserating, body shaming. We're all in our 40s now. We're, you know, post having kids. We're in a different stage. And like, we never, ever talk about it. And it is a fucking delight. I love my friends so much more now that we just never, ever go there. Um, because we talk about so many better things, but like, it's, you know, that I got lucky that that group of women wanted to evolve with me. Not everyone, not everyone's going to be on the same journey. Okay. So let's go, let's go back to how we're fucking up our kids again. (laughs) So the, I was shocked to read that the American Society of Pediatrics new obesity guidelines recommend diets for children as young as age two and even surgery for kids. I forget what the age is on there. 13, that's what I thought. Okay, that's what I had down here, but I had made it up, so I wasn't sure. (laughs) Nope. Um, Nope. This seems desperately harmful. Yeah. Why are they doubling down on this? Well, what, I mean, we, we, you've just discussed that, like, actually the connection between health and childhood obesity is, is tenuous. Like, we're not sure about it. So why are they doubling down? Well, about six weeks, the other piece of the guidelines was that they are now, doctors are encouraged from starting at age 12 to prescribe weight loss drugs. Namely, we go via Ozempic and like the whole new class of weight loss drugs. And about six weeks before the American uh, Pediatric Association released that guideline, 
uh, the FDA approved Wegovy for use in 12-year-olds. So I think there's a pretty clear line we can draw here. It is not about health. It is about pharmaceutical industry profit. You can create a lot more customers for your drugs and your bariatric surgeries if you keep widening the net of people who qualify for them. And it's so toxic because people hear things from doctors or medical professionals or even a drug commercial and just believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's that that gravitas that we give. And then whenever I talk about this, people are like, you hate doctors. I do not hate doctors. Okay. I have a kid with a complicated medical history. Doctors are some of my best friends. (laughs) Um, Really pro-doctor, really pro-Western medicine in all the ways. Except this is this. I think it's really important to also hold these people accountable and not treat them as gods when they have not earned that level of gravitas on this issue, when they are showing again and again how much the bias interrupts. I just had a woman commenting on my newsletter this morning that she was at the gynecologist and she was in the stirrups, in the gown, on the exam table, in the stirrups, and the gynecologist looked at her and said, you need to lose at least 30 pounds. Here's how much I weigh. Unbelievable. Oh. <laughs> um, a woman doctor said A woman that. doctor shared her own weight as... Um, I, I'm shocked, but not surprised. Exactly, right? exactly. Like, what, I remember, what world is that appropriate? <laughs> I still have a memory of being about 12 years old and being with, you know, old enough, young enough that I was still seeing the pediatrician. And he said to, and, you know, he was, we always used to see him at the tennis club and he was in really good shape. And he was like, you know, and he was talking about me needing to lose weight, which I didn't. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, we can have a we can have a cake in my house for a week and none of my kids will even touch it. And I remember feeling I mean, I remember what How I can recognize as yeah, hard. I know, really. What a sad cake. week in your house where everyone <laughs> stares at the cake you won't let them eat. <laughs> exactly. Cool. I know. I, 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 but it made me think, you know, people are people. I'm not a parent. And so I observe. And one thing I've observed is that parents can be really fetishistic about how they feed their kids. And I know it's nobody's fault. I know we're all victims of the time that came before us and how our parents screwed us up, but it seems so fucking narcissistic. (laughs) Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because also you have kids, like kids have like sensory issues. Like my kid is a very, like an unbelievably pronounced sense of smell and therefore taste. Mm -hmm. So like, there's not there like I couldn't I have friends who are like oh well my kids just eat everything and they're like you know here's some zucchini curry and I'm like what the fuck like I'm <laughs> no. not it's not happening over no. here like no. this isn't like this is a carb machine and it's just the way it is like I have a kid who's got neurodiversity and like what was more important yeah forcing this kid to like love asparagus and like you know or no making sure that they were like fed and felt good about themselves and could self-regulate like yeah. I And I, I, I I hate those parents, those like gourmand fucking, I have always hated them. And I don't like good for you if that's your life. Yeah. With your toddler eating sushi. Yeah. Exactly. That's great. great. That's not, that's not mine, but don't look down on me because mine eats chicken fingers. Like it's just what it is. And again, it's sort of exploding that it's about health thing, right? Because like Getting kids fed is the baseline of health. We don't really get anywhere if we aren't getting kids fed. And so if getting your kid fed means embracing boxed carbohydrates, that is a healthy choice. This is very much true in my house. I mean, that was my chocolate milk epiphany, you know? Yes. My daughter being able to drink by mouth was an important 
breakthrough in her healing. She still has a complicated relationship with food at times, but she's a confident oral leader now. This is huge. She takes joy in food that wasn't available to her in the first two years of her life. I'm going to revel in brownies and in the food, you know, in the foods that she loves and let her get to the other stuff in her own time. But I think I think what it comes down to, this is something I've been thinking about a lot since I wrote the book and, and talking about it. Um, we have such a hyper focus on nutrition. And as parents, we're told that nutrition is like the only goal at a family meal, basically. Like if your kids are eating perfect nutrition, you can just like pat yourself on the back. And I talk in the book about why that's not necessarily true, that in fact, if kids are getting enough food to eat, that like micronutrients, all the details of nutrition are going to work themselves out. And that the research really supports that. And the research really supports that putting a lot of rules around what you can't eat is only going to backfire. So there's that whole thing. And I think if we can step back from the like nutrition as a religion, really, this is like it goes well beyond science, nutrition as a cult, we can then say, my goal with feeding my kids is them feeling good in their bodies, is body autonomy. You know, I want my kid to be able to say no to eating something at the dinner table because I want my kid to be able to say no to something when her friend has a real dumb idea about what they should do at a party in five years. You know what I mean? Like, I want her to be able to say no when she's in a sexual relationship she doesn't feel good about. Like, I want them to be building that trust in their bodies and that sense of their bodies as theirs and as like this thing you can always listen to and check in with no matter what. That is a much more health-promoting and useful goal to me than whether they are eating broccoli, which they absolutely are not eating in my house. And that's fine. Ugh, I they mean, can... I try to force it, but it's it's a it's a nightmare. Right. Who wants to force a kid to eat local, eat two bites? But, and when you're forcing it, you're saying to them, don't listen to yourself, listen to me. I mean, I'm not yeah. saying this to criticize no, you. No, no, I did no, it no, too. no, I know. No, but like, I know. we're overriding that ability to trust themselves. When we force it on them, we're saying, and then we're like, oh no, they're so susceptible to peer pressure. It's like, well, you kind of taught them right. that from day one that you that someone else knows better about their body. I mean, okay. So, so here's a, here's a question. And then I, I, so here's a question. So one thing people have said to me is like, well, just don't have it in the house. Why do you have it in the house? Yeah. Why, why do you, I mean, you, you make the grocery list. Like, why don't you, why do you have chips in the house? Um, because there are definitely are kids that if you don't have their safe foods in the house are going to choose hunger and that goes nowhere good. That's the bottom line. Um, also because all of those foods are in the world. And I know the kids whose parents don't have it in the house because when they come to my house for play dates, they sneak an entire sleeve of Oreos or they sit there with a spoon and eat sugar straight from the bowl. <laughs> if you are restricting it, if you are restricting it to that degree that it's not in your house, you're not giving your kid any chance to learn their own, like learn what they like and dislike about treat foods and learn how to eat them in a way that feels good to them. So when they get the chance, oh, it's it's a feature, not a bug. Like humans are wired. If you have been restricted, your body is like, I'm fighting this famine. Okay, it's here. Go for it. Have as much as possible. I also, I like what you said. I mean, what you just said about restricting food, making you obsessed with it, because I have found yeah. that at any point in my life that I have tried to diet, the moment I tell myself I'm going to diet, I become obsessed with all food. Oh, you can food. think about it. Absolutely. It's all I can think about. Even if it's just fucking carrot sticks, it's yeah. all I can think about. Yeah. And that's, that's not like you not having willpower. I mean, that's a big myth that the book unpacks and that there's so much research to show. And even like mainstream obesity researchers will say this very clearly now. Willpower has nothing to do with it. Our bodies 
are wired to fight dieting because they are wired to protect us from famines. And so when you start restricting, you immediately trigger this whole cascade of chemical reactions in your brain, in your hormones, your hunger level rises, you become preoccupied about food, your metabolism slows down, your body is like, please eat, please eat, please eat. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can here, but you gotta, you gotta step up and eat. And so, yeah, we are just fighting our biology by doing that. And when we do that to kids who are also growing, who are developmentally curious about the world and exploring and naturally, you know, they're at these ages where all of their psychological development is like, I have to say, I have to disagree with you. I have to, you know, I have to find ways to assert my independence. Why would you make food the power struggle at that point? You know, like why, like let them find other ways to have that. Respect that now. It's so crucial. So, so my question, so we know that like wellness culture that promotes, you know, healthy lifestyle, places like Goop, they, we know that they're promoting a lot of disordered eating, right? Like I think of Gwyneth Paltrow's like, you know, bone broth for, for lunch. Do you think that there are um, places that are getting this right? Like, are there places to turn to for information, for lifestyle? Like, it feels like all women's lifestyle is still getting this wrong because even body positivity movement feels fraught, yeah. you know? You know, it's really interesting, though. I mean, I, you know, spent 10 years of my career writing only for women's magazines, trying to do these stories and just like hitting brick walls where editors were like, I don't understand what, of course, we can't tell people it's okay to be fat. But there are a few places like Self is one that's done a pretty impressive evolution um, and really leaned into centering fat, you know, content creators and writers and experts and people of color and genderqueer and all of that. So I think there are a handful of places that are really rethinking how they do it. And that's kind of cool seeing that coming out of our Lady Magic land. Um, yeah. <laughs> that we, well, we got it, there. <laughs> it occurs to me that the death of Lady Mags yes. is probably one of the best things that could have happened. Yes, yes, I think that's right. Um, I think that did lead to a real uh, reckoning where suddenly we, you know, we could start to have these conversations in a different way. But I think, too, we kind of have to step back from the idea that I need to find this expertise somewhere else. I think that's a big part of where it goes wrong, because as soon as you decide someone else is the expert on my body, you're just setting yourself up for a lot of the same stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't want to judge, you know, we are all entitled to make our own personal decisions about what yeah. we do and don't do with our bodies, right? Totally yeah. agree with you guys on that. Um, body autonomy is body autonomy. But I think it's worth considering, like, is this a really useful source? Is this a plan that's making me feel good about myself? Or is this me thinking, like, like are they working for you or are you working for them? I guess is a way to frame it. Yeah. And then larger than that, whatever you are doing in your own personal life about wellness, about deciding what you're eating or not eating or how you're working out, I am much more interested in what are you doing to name and reckon with anti-fat bias when you encounter it in your world, you know? Like, 
we can be doing our own personal things around this stuff and also be really good allies on anti-fat bias. Um, for me, that has meant I don't give money to gyms that promote dieting in January. It just doesn't feel good to me to spend money on fitness programs, you know? So I do Lauren Lavelle's workouts, which she's like an amazing black fat creator um, doing bar workouts and strength training. And I love it. And it's a totally safe space. And I just don't even have to tune out any of that other bullshit. And it's great. But that might not be the best fit for someone else. You know, like, I'm not here to judge. But if you do belong to a gym with some of that, if you're a paying customer there, like, can you speak up? Can you say, hey, I'd really love you to not have a billboard in January about this? Like, just looking for ways, if you're going to be engaging in that whole space, how can you bring some of this advocacy to it? Oh, my God. I mean, I feel like we could talk about this for 400 years. Like, I I have so... like I. I know. But, I keep wanting to be like, and then this happened to me, and then this happened to me. <laughs> I know. Same. Same. Well, I also, you, I just at know. the grocery store, too. All the personal so, Oh, I, I know. Of course. I love it. I love it. I really do. <laughs> no, I mean, but that is a lot for you to carry. But, you know, I, I just want to say I'm so grateful to you for this work. I think this work is so important, and it's sparking. I, I hope it, it's sparking in me, for sure. I hope it sparks in our listeners. Just, like, really just start examining yourself. Look at this anti-fat bias in yourself not only for our kids, but for ourselves, for the people in our lives, the other women in our lives. Like, I think we can, we, if we collectively really start to start to shift, we can, we can make something happen here, you know, but yeah, we got to sort of crack open. We got to break the seal a little bit. Right. And just accept that we're all kind of fucked up. We are, we are all fucked up and we have all been part of the fucking up and we can start to do it better a little bit, a little bit. That'd be great. So, yep. Yeah, progress, not perfection. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Virginia. This has been amazing. Oh my gosh. So good. Such a thrill for me. I love the podcast. Love chatting with you both in my head every week. So really delighted. Oh, everybody go out and buy Fat Talk. I swear it is a life-changing book. Really, really. If you have kids or if you don't, just if you ever are around children, if you have a body, I really think everybody (laughs) should buy this book. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, like I say every week, please rate and review it across all of the platforms. Also subscribe. We read five-star reviews on the show sometimes, and it just helps people find the show and, and helps us keep making the show. Speaking of making the show, if you want to support the production of the show, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash everythingisfine. For a cup of coffee a month, the price of a cup of coffee, you can get bonus episodes where we talk about sex. You could get blogs. You could get playlists, maybe, sometimes. There's all kinds of things. Just go over there. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram, at EIF Podcast. We have a robust and private Facebook group that is so helpful and so useful and has so many recommendations that I love. Thanks, everybody, for being there. I know Facebook blows, but the community is nice. Um... What else do I say here? Uh, oh, you can find you say, Kim. Go ahead. You say, Kim. You can find me, Kim, on my <laughs> Girls of a Certain Age substack. That is kimfrance.substack.com. And you can find and you can find Jen at jenromolini at tinyletter.com. Although not so much lately. Mostly she's on Patreon. That's right, Kim. And the show is... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a game show. <laughs> The show is mixed and edited by the great Natalie Vera. Thank you for Natalie Rivera. Thanks for putting up with all our shit, Natalie. We love you. And we'll be back next week.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 